This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. Kind of want to call it like a centrist speakeasy, but we're not quite underground just yet. Today's guest is Anderson Todd, who is a cognitive scientist and instructor of Jungian theories, psychotherapy, psychology. And uh, in this conversation, we talk about individuality, we talk about identity, we talk about current unrest and contextualize that within just, uh, you know, humans acting out what humans are always acting out. This is a very fun and engaging conversation. And I really hope I get to speak to him again, if not often. So without further ado, here's Anderson Todd. How should I introduce you? Are, are you one of those professors with like a CV that's an hour and a half long when you get introduced at a panel or something like that? No, not generally. I mean, even professor technically is not my title, right? Oh. That's a reserved title. Oh. Uh, colloquially, I'm professor, right? Because every instructor is professor, but technically I'm merely instructor. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. But um, but you're you're an instructor first or a uh, psycho psychoanalyst? I'm a psychotherapist, a therapist. registered psychotherapist. Yeah. Yeah. And is that uh, your, would you say that that's what you are first and instructor second? I think my LinkedIn says that I am a, uh, what am I? A university lecturer and registered psychotherapist. Okay. I think that's how I, I think that's how I log. That's my official online persona. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was accused of being a journalist, but I'm just a content creator. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was speaking with one of my good friends, uh, Sasha Ayad, who's a licensed professional counselor, and she works with teens relating to uh, gender, uh, teens who are experiencing distress with their gender identity. Mm-hmm. But she, she's also studying a lot of Jung right now. And she had a couple of questions about uh, in your one of your talks with Verveke, you guys talked about shadow work and she had mm-hmm. a good question that I wanted to explore with you. If, if you think that would be fruitful about sure. collective shadow work and, and what's going on right now with, uh, with the protests, at least in America, I'm sure Toronto's uh, got a different set of, uh, uh, we've had protests as well, actually. Okay. And are they centered around kind of the same rubric of police violence? Or? Uh, yeah, very much so. There was a, uh, an incident here in Toronto a few days ago uh, where, um, by, by all accounts, a, a police officer perhaps pushed somebody off a balcony. I, I'm not a police officer, so I don't have the inside track on that. But yeah. Uh, certainly, yeah, the, the whole issue of sort of um, inequity, you know, police violence, uh, government yeah. response. Yeah, it's been very much in the air here, too. Do you... Do you have an uh, opinion or thoughts on uh, protest as kind of a, a collective uh, kind of psychological event or, or some way of, of dealing with the concept of the shadow? And maybe you could sh- shed some light on what that means in a Jungian sense and how it sure. might help us understand certain dynamics that are going on with the different uh, narratives, the different races that are uh, kind of stacking each other and in and, and conflict and conversation right now. Sure. Um 
I mean, in terms of the collective shadow, right? Collective shadow work uh, can refer to sort of a bunch of different things, right? Like shadow work in general. So you're going to tend to have sort of, you know, a set of encounters with the shadow at various depths, ranging from the personal and moving into the collective, where the collective can take in the collective of you within a family unit, you within a small cultural group, you within a larger cultural group or society, you within the human race as a whole, right? So there's sort of an expanding set of things. When Jung talks about deep shadow work, um, right, deep collective shadow work, uh, often he's referring to this kind of the soul blasting experience of coming into contact with sort of you know, fundamental evil, fundamental wickedness, right? So if you want to think about this, that's kind of like, you know, thrusting your face into the Nuremberg trials or something of the like. It's that, it's that, oh, right, the capacity for sort of deep violence and deep cruelty um, is present in human beings as a species. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, if you're familiar sort of with work around, around uh, violence and primates, right? We're, as human beings, kind of an interesting... Um, species because we have a very low reactive violence. Like we're able to cluster together in large groups without attacking each other, which is quite unusual for species. Um, but we have a relatively high degree of proactive violence, which is we periodically for all of history and pretty much in every cultural group, we'll get together in groups and go looking for, for trouble. Mm. Um, but protest, uh, protest is hard to categorize in those terms because I think as an umbrella term, it can refer to a lot of different things. I mean, the majority of the protest actions that I've seen, and granted, I'm not on the ground, right? But the majority of the protest actions that I've seen seem to be nonviolent. And so a nonviolent protest gathering, you know, isn't quite the same as, you know, a, um, a, a mob, right? And there is such a thing as the collective shadow manifesting as a mob, where there is an outward projection and violence basically erupts. Um, you know, if you want to think a few years ago in England, right, there was a, a whole set of riots that broke out where people were um, effectively burning down buildings and businesses in their own areas, in their own neighborhoods. And at the time, I was speaking with a, a good friend of mine um, who is a Jungian analyst and also um, an Englishman, and he was sort of shaking his head. Uh, and I said, you know, it's, it's uh, sort of mind-boggling in a way. It's like they're expressing an outrage about about social injustice, but they're doing it in a way that's destroying their own space. And he was quite astute about it. And he said, but that's kind of where the fever pitch has gotten to. It's about burning down, in some sense, a world that you live in as an act of protest mm -hmm. um, against, um, against having to live in that world, mm -hmm. right? Now, I wouldn't want to generalize that to the bulk of these protests. The bulk of these protests seem to be nonviolent. And in that case, where do I stand politically? Um, Protest and nonviolent protest are one of those things that saw their proving ground in the 20th century as a method of enacting change against political injustice. I mean, it's hard not to look at, um, you know, Martin Luther King and Gandhi and not see a success story there. Um, and generally speaking, I am opposed to the use of sort of violent means, even if that's violence against property. But I also recognize that it is the case that historically sometimes change does come about through a contest of force. You know, if the sort of ruling power doesn't feel like budging and and the inferior group, right, isn't able to elicit enough compassion from the population at large, yeah. then periodically forceful clash is going to be kind of inevitable. Uh, and often, you know, that's the old saw, right? Uh, if you 
make sort of peaceful change impossible, you make violent change inevitable. And it does sometimes seem like the kind of current regime of powers that be um, have gone a fair length towards blocking kind of peaceful opportunities for, for real change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I'm not a political scientist. Uh, um, mm -hmm. It's hard for me to speak on that in depth, but that's, that's what it looks like from here anyway. There, you brought up a uh, compassion for, let's say an underprivileged group. And mm -hmm. one phenomena that's happening right now, at least in America, and I don't know about other countries, but in America, we have a certain interesting, I, I, I would suppose a sociologist would find it very interesting that you have, like in Olympia, where I, where I live right now, the mayor took a knee uh, with the protesters and then begged the police officers to take a knee. And she was a white mayor um, relinquishing a lot of her authority and, and paying a lot of obeisance to the marginalized group and adopting rhetoric about white people needing to be quiet and white people are guilty. We have a collective guilt. Do you have any ideas about the phenomena of collective guilt and if that, uh, how that works out on an individual level or how that, that is attractive to individuals to project their, their individual experience onto a, a historical narrative and what mm -hmm. we need to be careful when we're doing or conscious of when, when we go down that route? Sure. I mean, you know, Guilt is one of the oldest games in town. Huh. It's, it's, it's a psychological outlet, right? Uh, guilt is not new on the scene. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, being able to take on a collective guilt by association and being able to sort of absorb the sins of, of one's forebears and whatever um, can be a really valid way of processing one's place within historical movement, hmm. right? So, but, but there's this fine line that goes here. I mean... Typically speaking, when you see people talking about that particular form of collective guilt, you see people polarizing into two kind of extremes. Um, and one extreme says, like, basically, I didn't do anything wrong, right? Uh, whereas, you know, the other group is, like, uh, a little bit sort of shirt-tearing mm -hmm. um, over it. Uh, you know, trying to thread your way between those extremes uh, is an important way of recognizing the way in which you are both... Um, beholden to the individual and the collective. I mean, yes, on one hand, it's the case, right? Obviously, that you may not have done anything wrong per se, but insofar as you're sort of caught up systematically in something, you can be a beneficiary for something, you can be biased in certain ways, like those things are the case. Um, you know, many years ago when I was uh, doing classwork on this subject, I had actually the good fortune to um, take a therapy class which related to the concepts of intersectionality. And I was the only white, cisgendered, uh, tall, blonde, wide, um, upper, you're, upper middle You're the class. master race. Okay, we get it, we get it. Okay, but but that it was a valuable exercise. I mean, for one thing, because in a certain sense, I found, I found myself in this position where, where highly collective statements lodged with me as personal, and I had to wrestle with that. Around the same time, I attended a, a conference on equity studies, and it was a very similar situation. I may, I, I may not, without exaggeration, have been the only kind of white face in the room, right? And suddenly, I was, like, very aware of my positioning. Now, there's a couple of ways that I could approach that, right? One way that I could approach it is I could say, well, goddammit, this isn't my fault. Uh, sorry, can I say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, we can go like, up to the F word if you really like, need to. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes it's good if you hit your 
hammer with a thumb. No, thumb with a hammer. <laughs> either. Um, yeah, you know, I could have approached that and said, like, God damn it, like, I'm not doing this, like, right? But a lot of it was tied in less with what was really being sort of, it's not like anybody attacked me. It was more that I felt myself by association in this kind of collective locus, and it felt bad. Like, it felt mm. awkward, right? I felt, I felt guilty. I think that that can be valuable in the same way as processing other forms of collective guilt can be valuable. But the difference is, of course, getting specifically locked in with that as a framework. One of the ways that I often express this when I'm talking to my students is, like, I'm aware that within the current configuration of our society, I'm playing the video game on the easiest level, right? And that is sort of part and parcel of the privilege that I have, that that the nature of my particular positioning within our society means that my efforts benefit from a force multiplier, right? So mm. I get, I can mm. get sort of not exactly an escalator. I still have to work. But the point is that I don't suffer the same kind of headwinds and uphill. Trying to absorb things in that way and getting that fine balance between like, okay, so are my efforts irrelevant? No, they're not, right? Am I personally responsible for everything? No, I'm not. And so I'm not going to be sort of totally consumed, but at the same time, am I part of something that is leveling, you know, kind of injustice? To what extent am I perpetuating that? To what extent is it rendered invisible to me? I think those are important mm. collective questions for people to process. It's just hard not to process them in, in extreme terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are some of the ways that you've been able, and if this is too personal, please, please just discard it, but what are some of the ways that you've seen uh, navigating to make a more equitable society, like uh, in your personal uh, relationship with, with uh, I guess, the systems that you operate within? I mean, the foremost trick that I use, and this is primarily a therapeutic technique, right? Um, but the foremost thing that I do, of course, is not so much to pay attention to um, persons as types, but rather, of course, to pay attention to individuals in an intense way. Hmm. So, so and, and in so doing, sort of dissolve away the concept of type to a great extent. So uh, uh, I can give you an example of this. It's not uncommon for me to be in conversation with somebody who is to one extent or another sort of vaguely racist, right? So for instance, I was uh, at a dinner with somebody once um, who uh, had a pretty strong kind of anti-Palestinian bent um, and he was Jewish. I understood he had, you know, some commitments, there's historical material there. I get it. Right. And that's a really tangled situation. I mean, anybody that claims that they can just wrap up the situation in in uh, yeah. the Gaza Strip is that's tangled. Right. But what was interesting was that in conversation with him, when I drilled in on particularities, when I said, well, what about this person? He would say, well, no, that person I know they're OK. OK, well, what about this person? Oh, yeah, that person also. Individuals that he had met were typically exempt. And that's a very common pattern that you see in this kind of generalization, right? So one of the best ways, I think, to develop a certain kind of barrier-crossing empathy with the category is to temporarily dissolve the category, mm. right? So you see people as individuals. Then when the category reapplies, you realize, oh, wait, there are things that are category-crossing that I have in common with. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's hard to do. Well, it's exhausting, uh, it sounds like. I mean, to, to do that with every single person. Well, to treat everybody as an individual, yeah. right? Um, it, it's tricky for people. Um, but, of course, it's also sort of 
in some sense, best practice. I mean, our categories are at best heuristic shorthand, mm -hmm. at best. And usually they don't include a wide variety of things. They're chock-a-block with all kinds of generalizations. So when we're looking to interact with the individual, we need to interact with them as the individual. And sometimes abandoning the idea that our categories are representative of actual categories in the world is what we need to hold those things a little bit more lightly mm -hmm. and then to figure out that a lot of the time when we're getting bent out of shape about X and Y, those categories are fuzzier than we think they are. Mm -hmm. it, Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes me wonder that we have an implicit bias test, but do we have a test that, that shows how good you are at, at seeing through the category and, and connecting with the individual? And would that even be quantifiable at all? Or yeah. is that not the the positive skill to combat the, the bias? So we do, we do have some tests of that. There are some kinds of um, cognitive flexibility tasks um, that will deal with your ability to, so like um, the anomalous card sorting task is kind of a classic in the field. So the idea is that you, um, you're flashing up typically computerized these days, but you're flashing up playing cards. And so, you know, it'd be like the seven of hearts, the queen of diamonds, whatever, right? Flashing up playing cards. And the idea is that each time you flash the card up, the person is supposed to call the suit but what you have is somewhere in the mix, you've got an anomalous card, right? Like a black heart, yeah. something that, that represents a conjunction that isn't sort of allowed in the rules. Uh, and what you do is, of course, you track people's ability, right? You, when they get it wrong, you just represent it to them. And what's interesting is that you get this sort of differential, right? So, so across the kind of bell curve, you know, a wide variety of people will look at it for a while, and then often they'll kind of like laugh, and they'll be like, oh, uh, a bl black heart? Yeah. Like they'll do that. Some people get it really quickly. Those are people with a high degree of cognitive flexibility and, and ability to sort of pierce through and get at the underlying um, featural components. But interestingly, at the other end, there are people who, a small number, but nevertheless significant, who don't get it. And there's a fair number of anecdotal reports that interestingly, when they don't get it, right, when they, they don't get it, what happens is that they will suddenly um, become really angry Mm -hmm. uh, and when they do, if you they ask cheated. them, no, no, they just, they haven't, they haven't seen that there's an anomalous thing. They don't identify it at all. Oh, what happens instead is that they become intensely angry. And when you ask them, like, why are you angry? They confabulate. So they'll come up with reasons. It's too hot in here. I'm not being paid enough for this test whatever, in the way that we see confabulation and other kinds of psychological experiments. What's interesting about that um, is that it aligns really closely with other kinds of categorical violation experiments that we see. So like there's a classic, um, sorry, am I going on too long? Is no, no, cool? please go, 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 okay. go, go. Okay, there's this really interesting experiment that I saw presented. Um, I'll have to dig up the reference for you, but I saw it presented at a conference and it's very much in this line. So what you do is you get people in uh, the lab, okay, and they're uh, doing a computerized task where what they're supposed to do is they're presented with a, a crime and they're supposed to assign to it a punishment, right, off of a list, right? So they can choose to be more or less punitive. Very typically, these things are sort of broadly construed sex crimes, right? Mm -hmm. so not sex crimes, but rather things like prostitution, okay? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you you present them with a thing, this person was caught selling sex, whatever, and you present them with a list of of options about how harsh or or um, uh, lenient, not harsh, lenient, thank you, yeah. uh, they want to be. Okay, 
So that's fine. That's the sort of baseline setup. But what you do is, of course, you've got your uh, research assistant there. They're wearing a lab coat and they're maybe, you know, like a young woman or something. And halfway through the task, you do one of these things where you swap them out. You take advantage of change blindness. So they go into a little hidden closet and somebody else comes out of the closet wearing the same outfit. Most of the time in those change blindness experiments, the people conducting the task don't notice that the person has changed, which is to say they don't notice consciously. But the second that you create that change, all of a sudden they become massively more punitive. Hmm. So when categorical violations occur in certain segments of the population, it seems like it can really make them ratchet down. And that's been linked closely with uh, disgust factors. Yeah. Uh, it's been linked closely with some kinds of, I think, political conservatism uh, in its more extreme formulations. Um, and in general, with this kind of uh, you know, desire to maintain a kind of a rigid order formulation. So unconsciously, they get categories violated, and then they clamp down mm. consciously. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Hmm. There's a lot of different places to go with that. Um, one of the categories that I wanted to speak to you about was the categories of, of gender. And, and uh, Jung has a lot of... Uh, he, he kind of walks through mythology quite a lot. And, and mythology is uh, representative or is filled with representations of gender. And what we're seeing right now is um, society or certain parts of society, maybe even a certain generation within society is really spending a lot of time teasing apart gender and, and wondering, am I, am I this gender? Am I that gender? And, the, and they're uh, creating uh, infinite categories of gender. Mm -hmm. And and it seems like there's kind of a there's a reaction to that to to collapse gender down into sex. But I, I'm wondering if if you have if that's uh, if gender categories are are useful in in psychological uh, ways or in literary ways, or, and what what your thoughts are on on the violation of those categories or or our our interpretation of what those categories actually mean as something that are stable or unstable or sure sure. Um, I mean, it's clear that to some extent we're going through some cultural flux around that. Um, I mean, you know, if you if you sort of look cross-culturally, not every culture agrees on, on you know, male-female as a basic binary category distinction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that doesn't seem very well borne out in biology for the people that want to ground it out to sex either. Um, you know, Jung, I think... Many of the sort of post-Jungians who looked at Jung had a way of reifying his categories, I think, in a way that he very deliberately warned against. So, you know, he lays out a set of sort of archetypes and things, right, as a, as a shorthand handle for talking about stuff. But he's repeatedly clear that you can't just reify those things. It's, you, you can't just be like, and this is the persona, and this is the shadow, and this is the blank, and these are the 12, and that's what you need to know. He's very, very clear that the map is not the territory. Hmm. Similarly, if you look at his constructs around sort of the anima and the animus, that is yeah. to say the contrasexual soul image, I mean, in some ways, you know, this material started getting produced 100 years ago. So it's a product of its time. But in other ways, if you want to really look at it, actually, his categories are remarkably fluid, Right. Mm -hmm. So like one of the one of the if you look, for example, at the various alchemical triptychs that he studied later in his career, what you'll see is these various fluid mergings of the masculine and the feminine energy. And in a sense, the whole idea of the contrasexual soul image is this acknowledgement that in this yin yang kind of fashion, right, the the female contains the male and the male contains the female to whatever, right, whatever extent that is the case. And so each individual necessarily contains 
both of those things, but also the intermixture. Hmm. More advanced stages in alchemical and individuation process are often, in fact, represented by things like the mystical hermaphrodite, right? Who is a figure that is deliberately sort of both or neither, right? And transcends traditional gender category in, in lots of ways. And hmm. that scene is being sort of quite important for psychological development. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the other thing is that the use of masculine and feminine uh, in those senses is metaphorical, right? In the same way as talking about it as like lunar and solar is metaphorical. You know, Jung, of mm. course, wouldn't, I think, have said that the sun was literally masculine, nor the moon literally feminine. It's just that there's a conventional symbol association within our culture. And so if you want to be able to maneuver through the symbolism and the mythology of your culture, you have to have a sense of what those symbols are, right? Or, or you can't understand it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make it literally the case, right? In Japan, for instance, the moon is deemed to be masculine and a rabbit, I think, right? So yeah, yeah. Different, different cultures carve this stuff up in different ways. The trick isn't that any one of those is right or wrong per se, in the same way that languages are not right or wrong. The way that a language carves up the world is not, it's like, you know, having a word for something is a useful device that yeah. allows you to narrow your focus, but that's it, you know? And the second you start treating words as things, you start getting confused. Ditto, I would tend to say that, you know, there's no question that a certain amount of, you know, gender exploration and gender um, confusion in some cases, like people really are confused in some Mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. But my general tendency is to think that actually widening out the sense of identity beyond conventional category is probably a really important psychological development. Mm -hmm. That's that was going to be my next question because it seems that in certain respects people are are trying to stretch identity to 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 fit themselves in too, and it seems like the identity category is something that you help that helps you or is a step towards a, a greater identification or a greater uh, understanding of yourself as a self beyond a category. Have you seen that? And I guess you work with young people who are playing yeah. with identity a lot and what, what's your idea your idea on uh, the proper use of identity as a category of self well I mean identity means a lot of different things in depth psychology right mm-hmm. because because we aren't um, within depth psychology broadly speaking and within psychodynamics we aren't unitive beings right so the idea is that we're not a single person in in the way that most people would think of it we're not like a cartesian point in space yeah. kind of thing yeah. we're a bunch of different interacting forces and factors of personality so really within jungian thinking there's a few different things that you might think of as an identity right the ego which is your identification with the conscious self that's one kind of identity and it's sort of your private identity right mm. but then there's also the persona there's the mask that you wear and the mask that you wear varies from circumstance to circumstance it is both like clothing a way that you can express yourself while simultaneously concealing yourself it's kind of heideggerian in that way so you're expressing and concealing but you're making choices and there's some transitional material between that so the concept of fake it till you make it right which is like you know when you become a profession like a lawyer or something everybody shows up and they've got imposter syndrome right what are they doing they're pretending to be lawyers yeah and what they do is they continue to pretend to be lawyers until their impression gets sufficiently good that they're indistinguishable from actual lawyers it's kind of turing test of profession right yeah 
over over time it, it's as though the lawyer what the, the the archetype of the lawyers is just the accumulation of a bunch of people pretending to be lawyers almost it's like <laughs> it's just kind of bootstraps into existence in a way yeah i mean usually with a certain amount of of background myth or symbolism i mean the archetype of the judge is in part the accumulation of what people have done but also there's a strong reference back to things like king solomon right yeah. and king solomon as being the wise judge and you know, the Solomon story, this is the kind of thing people internalize, but they also internalize, you know, Atticus Finch and they internalize all kinds of stuff, right? So they internalize various narratives, fictional and, and actual, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which don't differ that much if you don't know the people involved, right? The story that you hear about a fictional person, the story that you hear about somebody who died before you were born are not all that distinct. Yeah. So yeah, you internalize that and then you act the part, you know, you look around. Um, and everybody does that. That's why everybody has imposter syndrome. But the difference is that after a certain point, your impression gets sufficiently good, but also in enacting the impression, as it were, you, you have actually developed the skills in question, right? Yeah. And that's the fake it till you make it. The trick becomes, of course, when that stuff becomes too tight. So yeah, young people do a fair bit of experimentation with their identity, which is healthy. Indeed, uh, very often it's the case that, you know, with my clients, Older clients begin to enter a state of health when they start playing with those pieces. Often it's the excessive rigidity of the identity pieces that they've chosen for themselves to cause them the problem. Yeah. 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 And you were going into different forms of identity, but I had a, a, a question to you. Do you, th have you seen, I think we're about the same age. So you lived before the internet was like the internet, right? So yeah, I'm, you, I'm a child of the card catalog. Okay, so you've seen this uh, generation come up where they've known nothing but net in in a, in a certain respect. Have you seen that change one's relationship to identity and what it means to have an identity to be presenting this artificial construct on a website that is who you mm -hmm. are? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Have you seen that that's kind of molded or made uh, different kind of uh, challenges for young people in in striving towards authenticity? Yeah, I mean, so insofar as the persona, right, as this constructed thing is the case, um, yeah, modernity gave us Facebook. And I mean, obviously, there was MySpace before that, and there was whatever. There were other ways of expressing yourself digitally, but Facebook kind of clinched that formula. And, and you know, it's inheritors, Instagram, whatever, right, all the various sort of social media platforms. Um, you know, there was always a desire to, to put lipstick on one's persona. That's not new. And it's always been the case, of course, that, um, you know, people put their so social best foot forward in public and, and have their sufferings in private. That's not new either. Mm. What's happened, I think, with things like social media is, yeah, um, there's so much identity construction and there's money now in identity construction, right? Influencers, mm. essentially speaking, have a job and their job is to be a particular kind of person. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And, and thus to promote. So uh, how much does that play in quite a bit? I mean, my, I'm a Facebook resistor. Um, so, uh, early on, um, a girlfriend of mine tried to get me on Facebook and I stayed for three days, oh. uh, and then, and then decided this is not, I don't need this. Okay. Um, and I have a very, I don't know. It wasn't a revulsion to it on some level. It was just a personal, uh, just not needing it kind of thing? Um, yeah, I mean, my attitude towards technology, I, I have a hybrid attitude towards technology. I'm an 
early slash slow adopter. So very often it's the case that when a new technology comes up, I'm aware of it fairly leading edge, uh, but I make very individual decisions about which technologies I adopt. And I do it on the basis of both what I see as the probable utility of the technology, but also what effects I see in the people using the technology. Mm -hmm. So like I was slow, for instance, to adopt mobile phones um, because I was like, I don't know that I need to take a phone call in the grocery store or the movie theater. I eventually did more or less out of social pressure. With something like Facebook, I have to admit that I'm often, and, and this is a clinical observation, but I'm often concerned about the effects that those sorts of things have on people. They seem to make people very sad. Mm. Uh, and also they, they set people adrift in a kind of endless scrolling content. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a, a trance to it. Um, so yeah, it's not so much a revulsion as I'm not sure what, the, what do I need this for? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But you see how, I mean, in another way of asking the question, what are some of the uh, advice that you would give to people who are highly social media uh, mm -hmm. on about uh, understanding what it's doing to you, uh, about understanding that the persona is uh, a, con a construct and, and there's other other ways towards authenticity. I guess another question is how do you know when your persona is you or how do you be a you without a persona? Is, is authenticity a myth or, or is it something that, that we can uh, resonate with or, or achieve? I, I don't think authenticity is a myth. I mean, I think that authenticity has become a commodity, hmm. right? So, you know, the, the pursuit of authenticity was sort of a natural extension of, reproducibility and electronic reproducibility, the real thing versus copies, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Yeah. was bound to make us obsessed with authenticity. Uh, but I don't think okay. that, I don't think that authenticity itself is illusory. I just think that it has very little to do with a constructed presentation. If you're constructing your presentation, if you're thinking about it all the time, and if you're like, I should do this, no, this, no, not that. If you have to retake a photo, you're probably not engaging in an authentic way, hmm. right? Hmm. Th that is to say that authenticity is not consciously derived. Okay. Right? Okay. But it's something that you can hone your conscious to be aware of, I guess? I think it's something that if you're doing a certain amount of inner work, you're yeah. naturally moving towards over the course of your life. But when okay. I say moving towards over the course of your life, I mean, I mean, you know, I, we are rough contemporaries. I'm in my 40s. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm more myself now than I was in my 30s. And in my 30s, I was more myself than I was in my 20s. And some of my views have changed over that time. I not infrequently say that if my 17-year-old self could see me now, he'd punch me right in the face, <laughs> right? Like I have different ideas. Yeah. And that's fine. Ideas change. I get that, right? But, but at the same time, there have been a lot of crux points, okay, in my life where I've had to make the, make the decision. It's like, okay, do I knuckle under because of a perceived need or do I, do I do what, what in fact feels right to me? And that's, that's a balance we're always going through. That's the social contract. Am I going for me or am I following externalities yeah. where those things co come with social risk, right? Often that's the direction of authenticity. If something is socially risky, often it's authentic because society doesn't want you by and large. It wants you to be easily categorizable and largely interchangeable so that you're <laughs> easy to deal with, right? Yeah. Individuals by necessity are not easy to deal with. And so, right, the very thing you were talking about where you said it sounds like a lot of effort. Yeah, 
it is a lot of effort. And that's why it gets rejected. It's like, no, 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 P play by the rules, mm -hmm. play by the rules so that we can deal with you as sort of a fungible good. Yeah. Um, which is easy for a large scale social structure, but shit for people. Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking about you say authenticity is not consciously derived. And I was thinking about, well, don't I need to strive to be a better person? And is that, again, another form of fakery, you know, like, like a, of imposing virtue on myself because I have a conscious idea that I should be better and whether or not that, that idea itself is socially constructed or something like that. But don't to, to say that it's not consciously derived could almost be construed as just be yourself and it doesn't matter. And, and we all know that, too much of that doesn't work for society, you know? Right. Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, again, I, at the risk of being wishy-washy, you, yeah. you know, you're trying to thread down the middle, right? Yeah. You're trying to thread down the middle. It's the same thing. Individual versus collective. You have to find a balance where you're threading down the middle as a basic rule. And this is very basic to me because, you know, on the spectrum of empathy to psychopathy, I'm closer to the empathy end. It's like, don't hurt people. And and as that is a basic of ethics, right, is a, a kind of constraining, uh, right? It's it's a constraining factor on your yeah. actions. Yeah, do what you want, just don't hurt people. Well, don't hurt people is a difficult rule to interpret and always has been, mm -hmm. right? So, but this is the province of, you know, every religion and ethical system, right? <laughs> How do we be good exactly? But it seems like there are some basics, like avoiding abject cruelty seems like, you know, a pretty straightforward rule to follow, right? Which it's like, yeah, just don't, don't be needlessly cruel. Don't be needlessly selfish. And whenever possible, you know, it's not a bad idea if, if you can at all to try to put yourself into the other person's shoes. But a lot of the time that's not, that's not so much an intellectual exercise yeah. as it is an experiential exercise. And therefore it's, it can be difficult for people, right. To do. Um, yeah. What's an example I have wanted for many years, uh, I had a student about 15 years ago who desperately wanted to take a trip to a meat processing plant. And the reason they wanted to do this is they wanted a direct encounter with the mechanical industrial process of, of meat, right? And as soon as they suggested this, they, I was like, well, why? They were like, because I eat meat. And I think that basically the top level of my brain and the bottom portions of my brain are not communicating. And I thought about that when they said it, and I was like, I also would like to take a trip to the meat factory because something tells me I couldn't take a bolt gun to a pig's head or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. I, I would be unwilling to do that. And yet I do like bacon. So, um, you know, uh, it turns out that, of course, that's remarkably difficult to do. It's really hard to get into a meat plant. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, well, because, because, the, because honestly, they have a vested interest. They're not stupid. They understand that a large number of people, if they saw the process, would be grossed out. Yeah. And so the idea is you, you contain that a little bit. Lots of things are like this. We sanitize a lot of things. We're a very death averse um, civilization, right? We don't like death. We don't like age. Um, we like to shuffle those things uh, off to the margins whenever mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that, you know, um, is about sort of avoiding confrontations with some of the deeper tragedies that would, I think, force a confrontation with the self, uh, capital S, and that's the process by which one comes to authenticity, right? A greater understanding of what you really are, okay. right? Does that make sense? I mean, it's very yeah. abstract in a way, but... No, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it necessarily has to be, but that's, that's another... You said the ego and the persona, and then there's this other self, and, like, you can only... I wonder if you, could, you can talk about the ways in which one confronts 
or is confronted by the self, and if that gives us some sort of indication of what we mean when we talk about capital S self. Sure. Um, okay, so capital S self is tricky territory. For, for all the reasons I already said about Jung being careful that the map isn't the territory, blah, blah, blah. On top of that, I personally, um, I have a, a strong epistemological stance, which is that I'm a militant agnostic. So I, I, I in, in, all but the f- in all but the finest cases, you know, uh, Euclid's proof of infinite primes, a few other things, I reject certainty as a model. I, I don't think it's useful. I think it's often, in fact, d- deleterious. It's, it's worse. It causes more problems than it solves. So consequently, I try to keep my perspectives on sort of big metaphysical questions quite loose. I'm willing to entertain lots of different things. You know, that doesn't mean that I ignore evidence. I, in fact, try to absorb all evidence, but I try not to make final decisions. So with that in mind, capital S self. Yeah. If I'm feeling really cognitive science then the line that I give is, there is no self except self-organization, which means that to talk about the self is sort of, a, it, it's a, a way of referring to kind of the center of the cyclone, that we have a self-organizing process that is mind or brain, depending on how those things interrelate, and that somewhere in that self-organizing process, there is a kind of strange attractor or something, and that that sort of central structuring thing, right, is what we would refer to as the self. And what that means is that, you know, from, a, from that kind of cognitive science perspective, being in contact with the self is about being in contact with the basic framing machinery of your cognition, uh, what John would call relevance realization, right? So that it's possible in certain kinds of mystical states, meditative states, altered states generally, right, to, to sort of turn your awareness inwards far enough that you come into confrontation with the processes which construct yourself and your perceptions and the interrelation of those things, right? So in that way, right, turning your awareness inwards towards that thing is essentially coming into contact with the thing that makes your universe in a solipsistic sense, right? Yeah. Okay, so so that's one way of thinking about it in a cognitive science sense. Um, and how does, and, when you were saying about death and tragedy being hid by our civilization, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a way of not con- being confronted by aspects of the self, how, how would death and tragedy, how, how does that introduce an understanding of that self-organizing principle? Is that what you... Is that fair to say that that's what you're pointing to? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, you know, part of the, you know, when you read the mystical literature and um, we've done a fair bit of sort of uh, work in terms of both reading that literature traditionally, but also we do work at the the Consciousness and Wisdom Studies Lab at U of T around mystical experience. So when you look at the literature, it's very clear that there is a kind of a paradoxical awareness that comes about when people have these deep mystical confrontations with sort of the ground of reality, right? As they d- would variously describe it. And, and they get sort of two things. They get simultaneously a sense of their own limitation and mortality, right? And also uh, a sense of kind of immortality of process. Hmm. So, so you, and you can think about this a little bit. You can be like, oh yeah, right. Anderson Todd has got, uh, 40 years, if I'm lucky, right? That's it. I got four decades. And the first four decades were the long ones because of time dilation, right? <laughs> yeah. the, the next four decades are like, yeah. they're, they're fast, you know? Um, I don't, it's June right now. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and in one of the most like time expanded periods I can remember. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so on one hand, it's like coming into confrontation with that is this recognition, right? I am a dying thing. Like, and my span is limited and my choices are limited and my potential is limited. And these are all things that my ego, my standard ego just does not want to hear. My ego has no interest in that. My ego doesn't want to hear about its limitations. My ego doesn't want to by and large hear that it's like tick, tick, like yeah. tick, tick, yeah. you know, but simultaneously there's also this expanded sense that like, Oh, this thing that is constituting me and is constituting in some sense, the world and the relations between is bigger than me mm-hmm. and it will go on after me. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so there's a kind of, um, there's kind of paradoxical thing that happens where people become simultaneously aware of their own highly limited and mortal identity, but also of this kind of immortal thing that transcends them in some important sense. That, kind of confrontation often has a sharply clarifying role, right? Religious experience and metanoia are one of these things that can change people's identity, perspective, priorities. It's remarkable in a way that nothing else can. I mean, this is sort of the, the core insight of AA, right? It's uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is a whole system which is designed to provoke these kinds of experiences. Okay. Um, it's a system for Rebooting. trying to drive people, yeah, well, into foxhole conversions. Yeah, okay, right? yeah. And <laughs> yeah. This is this is a related question. Verveke does a lot of work on on. Uh, I guess I I feel that he's trying to reach towards reconstituting a, a religion in in a sense into our society. I'm wondering, do you think that we've lost religion? What have we lost, and and what are we what are we losing out on by not having that in in our secular society? Is there is there something right. that's going to take the place or is there always going to be a rebooted religion? Uh, do we just need to choose sure. wisely or because it'll be imposed on us or? So, I mean, religion has always meant a bunch of things. Yes. Right. Uh, I mean, <laughs> this is, this is a, this is a refrain of yours. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's true. I mean, look, I can't give you simple answers for yeah, thank you questions. That. Yeah. Um, religion has always meant a bunch of things. And what I mean is like 40,000 years ago, if you, you know, dipped into the upper paleolithic and you had looked at communities of hunter gatherers, you would have found one notion of the spiritual, probably in the general population and a very different notion of the spiritual in the shaman. Right. And, and the fact is that the kind of cognitive machinery probably that the shaman was bringing to bear and the personal experiences are part of what renders him a kind of spiritual authority. Right. So his notion of these things, that's why bother going to him. Otherwise, his notion of that stuff is going to be different. Likewise, you look at the medieval church and the idea of what the lay people are dealing with in terms of Christianity, what the priesthood are dealing with and what the monastic class are dealing with are, again, very different things. So in that sense, I mean, you know, the modern secular perspective, I think John's analysis is, sorry, John Verveke. I'm used to say, John's a friend of mine, so I'm used to saying John, but yeah, John yeah. Verveke. <laughs> yeah. John's analysis of, of the meaning crisis and its relationship to religion, I think, is a very strong one. And he highlights a couple of really specific points. I mean, one, he says, science does an incredibly effective philosophical job of driving a wedge between mind and matter right? And it was an implicit wedge anyway, right? It was, it was already there, but like Descartes really just like, boom, boom, and we get this split. And when we get that split, we're sort of divorced and alienated from the world, right? And that gradually begins to creep outwards. You get Newtonian mechanics, you know, just billiard balls in space, and you get, right, the, the sort of the, the horror of Darwinian natural selection, which is a thing people sometimes encounter, this like, oh God, everything is just like 
clamoring and it's blood and tooth and nail and <laughs> yeah. death, right? And when people have that experience, it's it's really awful, right? It's not like the magic of watching one thing become another. It's like everything is ripping each other to bits on this ball. Yeah. Um, so, so science has sort of widened that split. And the thing is that the traditional religious systems as they're formulated um, are designed to bridge that gap, but they haven't got an answer to science except to sort of say, eh... Yeah, or some you stay that, over there, we'll do our thing over here, kind of. Right. And the thing is that that's not viable. Okay. Now, that what that means is that the work is on science's shoulders to solve the problem it created. So John's basic contention would be we need more science, not less. Mm-hmm. More philosophy, not less. That's how we're going to bring this okay. back together. Okay. But as part and parcel of that, as he points out, there are things that we have thrown out. We've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. So when we said religion, you know, and, and we started to divorce ourselves from religion, we threw out a, a, an enormous set of tools, observations, um, techniques, right? Things that uh, many, many generations of humans before us skillfully and intelligently used to navigate questions of the world and meaning. And we just garbaged all of that and said superstition. So the idea is reclaiming those things and putting it into dialogue with a scientific framework. Obviously, we're both cognitive scientists, so that's kind of where we land. <laughs> yeah. But because uh, every discipline thinks it's the master discipline, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm a storyteller. I think everything's a narrative. So yeah, yeah. Well, me too. I'm a, I'm a writer too, and there so I get to <laughs> switch my hats yeah, right. uh, strategically. But yeah, the idea is like in John's critique. Yeah, it's up to science to bridge this gap. But the whole point is, science needs to sort of bring a bunch of this stuff back into the fold. And when you really look at it closely, and this is something he and I have worked together on for 10 years, um, what's remarkable is that when you really do deep analysis, very often these tools aren't bizarre and superstitious and alien, provided that you treat them sufficiently charitably. Actually, they're quite explicable within systems. And one of the things, of course, is that on the other side of the aisle, people have to rid themselves of the bias that science inherently you know, uh, drains the world of, of magic and mystery and meaning. The, it renders the world infinitely more mysterious, right? The scientific world is far weirder and, and more mysterious than the pre-scientific world. Mm-hmm. So bringing that stuff back into the fold um, yeah. is part of it. But, you know, following Jung, I'd say we're probably about 200 years out on that. Yeah. Before we, we've rebooted that, what, what you were talking about about you made a like a three tiered class with regards to the Middle Ages, having the common folk, uh, the priestly caste, and and the monastic class, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to overlay that probably foolhardily trying to overlay that with can science uh, speak at all levels? Like the 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 benefit of Christianity during the Middle Ages is that the the monk could you know break bread on a psychological level like like in a cultural way they're all mm-hmm. speaking the same language it doesn't seem that or maybe i'm wrong that science can can bring the common and and the various tiers the various elites in contact with with people who who are are living out that doctrine on another level so if if, well, if more science is needed i don't think that everybody is suited to doing more science some people aren't scientists Sure. Some people aren't scientists. I mean, what we need is storytellers, right? So the thing is that science is hilariously underfunded, but <laughs> so, so is storytelling. Yeah. Right. Neither one of these things. I mean, if you consider, you know, 
think about the medievals, right? You would get a town in medieval France where the multi-generational project around which the entire town was centered was the construction of a cathedral. The last time we had a cultural project anywhere even approximating that was the Apollo program, right? We just don't, we don't do that kind of stuff. The Apollo program had no problems filtering down to common consciousness. People understood the magic and importance okay. of going to yeah. the damn moon, right? Yeah. And likewise, if I think when you get skilled storytellers and skilled communicators, they're able to take what might be highly abstract, abstruse mathematical material and bring it down to a level where it matters. The thing is that sometimes there's a, a bit of a middle tier to carry my system, right? Which yeah. is sort of the, the priestly caste who believes that they understand science, but they can't approach it with an appropriate degree of wonder. They just have a codified sense. So like, you know, insane clown posse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. So I'm, I'm really interested. This is going somewhere. Okay. I'm really interested by insane clown posse and the juggalos. But one of the things that really interests me, aside from the fact that they seem to be a variant of Taoism and that's a different story. <laughs> one of the things that really interests me about those guys is that they released that video, right? And it had the classic line in it, right? They were like miracles. And it had that classic line, magnets, how the fuck do they work? There, I got my way to the F-bomb. Magnets, how the fuck do they work? And everybody, of course, had a good chuckle uh, at their expense. And when I listened to that, I went into my class and I said, that's funny, right? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, how do magnets work? And people looked at me and they were like, well, there's lines, lines. And I said, "Uh uh-huh. And how do those work? And they were like, uh, and I was like, I'll tell you, I know a little. They work by exchange of virtual photons. What does that mean? And they were like, and I was like, you don't know how magnets work. <laughs> like, stop pretending that you know. Yeah, okay, yeah. You don't, you don't. I think there's a lot of people like me that don't know how magnets work. And even if we do know how magnets work, they're still amazing. There's yeah. a deep mystery there. And magnets, how the yeah. fuck do they work, is actually a far more authentic expression of that in a way. Right. So things get caught in this pseudo certainty. There's a. Like, yes. Yeah. 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 That pseudo certainty. When, when you were talking about agnostic, I'm like, oh, but when you said you're rejecting certainty, I'm like, yeah, I'm totally I, I'm totally on with you because it, it 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 one, there's a lack of humility and there's a lack of wonder. Like it seems like wonder yep. and humility are really they're mutually dependent in a certain way. And, and, yeah. and could you, could you talk about uh, that, that middle ground? It seems like a sophomoric, almost like the, the person who is, is no longer a part of the rabble, but actually doesn't know, doesn't have any actual elitist skills in a way I'm, I'm kind of dumbing things sure. down, but what is that middle ground of, of losing connection with wonder, but having too much expertise to not know how stupid you, you are in a way. Right. Um, so uh, the, is that related end. to what you were talking about? The fake it till you make it kind of level. A bit. Maybe? It's it's maybe. it's the ugly it's the ugly transitional stage, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so you know, as we know, there are lots of cognitive biases, right? That in one way or another tap into this kind of pseudo certainty, and we know from loads of experimental evidence that people prefer certainty to truth under a large number of conditions, right? So they would prefer to have a certain belief that is incorrect rather than question things because destabilization sits poorly, right? That's also what you see with like anomalous card task and that kind of stuff. People would prefer to just have a freak out rather than break up their category a little bit. And in some ways, that's like a good cognitive miser kind of strategy, right? We have a limited amount of resource to go around. And so, you know, it's like, don't shake things up too much is not a bad general strategy. It's why it's, for instance, good that we can't 
easily intervene on our deep cognitive processes because we would scramble our brains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right? Geez, I wonder what happens if... Yeah, yeah, that's not good. So what happens, I think, a lot of the time is that people want a system that hangs together with a reasonable degree of plausibility. But then once it does that, they're they're willing to just take that at face value without getting into the deeper things. So lots of classic experiments. You get people, you say, do you know how bicycle works? And they say, yeah, oh, absolutely. And you're like, can you draw a bicycle, please, and explain how it works? And they fall apart, hmm. right? Um, you know, this is uh, mm -hmm. the classic, right? And, and we know from all kinds of uh, experimental cognitive bias results that that's the case. The thing is that it's invisible to us. We don't know until we're confronted with us, with it, right? Usually, we can adopt a practice of confronting ourselves with our own lack of certainty, right? We can engage in Socratic questioning. We can indulge in a kind of Socratic process of aporia. Yeah. But when you level Socratic aporia at somebody else, it pisses them off. I mean, right, for all that we talk, for instance, in the academy about the value of Socratic questioning and Socratic education, what happened to Socrates? <laughs> the yeah. academy would probably do the same thing to Socrates if he showed up. Yeah, we don't like that kind of thing. Generally speaking, we don't like sort of disruption in that mm -hmm. way, by and large, right, as, as yeah. a group. So, I mean, in my opinion, there are other ways to introduce, pedagogically, to introduce that kind of disruption. That's a big part of where my own um, practice goes. But, yeah, I think people get stuck at a level of kind of good enough. It hangs together well enough, and then they're just like, okay, now I don't have to think anymore. Mm -hmm. And... The problem with that is that that tends to hit multiple levels. It hits their sense of society, right? Classic thing, right? Uh, you know, the old joke, men get to a certain age and then their hair stops changing. And <laughs> it's like they found their formulation. That's yeah, okay, it. Yeah, yeah, Boom. Yeah. Likewise, the solutions that we come up to in our personal lives, we come up with solutions to problems, then we fixate on them. And often later in life, those solutions are the problem. Yeah, yeah. Right. We've gotten fixated. Same thing at every level. And same thing about our sort of conceptions of how the world works. And in general, we're just often instantly flexible. Um, and probably is, a boatload of that is genetic. Yeah. But, is there a relationship between the mystical experience that you guys have been studying and the mm -hmm. pedagogical practice of interruption, of doubt, of, of seeding some sort of insight into the student uh, or, or patient? Oh, or Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, I was a student of John Verveke's um, back in the day. Uh, I was a teacher prior to that, so I had my own kind of technique and whatever. But definitely, there's no question that I learned um, some things pedagogically from his style. And um, if you've seen his work, he has a very distinctive kind of lecturing style, right? Yeah. He, he does a thing, which I pointed out many years ago. Okay, he, So he builds an argument from plausibility. He says, look, here's a problem. And you're like, ooh, a problem. Yeah. And, then he, and then he's like, okay, well, here's a solution to it. Da, 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 da. And right when you start to peek up into like, that is a good solution, he's like, and here's what's wrong with it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you are thrust once again into like, whoa, I don't know. And he's like, but that's okay, because there's an answer to that. Da, 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 yeah. da, da, <laughs> and you're like, oh, good, relief. And <laughs> he loves doing this. If you watch his face... You can see it. He enjoys it, right? He he loves that moment of watching people spin. Yeah. Similarly, I've got, you know, we have different pedagogical styles. Yeah. But one of the things that I like to do is flood people's sense of um, admissible fact. So I tend to, to, I have a kind of Gödelian approach, right? Where if, if the Gödelian balance is between consistency and completeness, I tend to favor completeness 
over consistency. If you can't have both, so there's kind of a flood of things, and then I'll start pointing out the inconsistencies. Yeah. And when my students are like, right, I've hit them with a, just a blast of here are things in the world, and now well, how do you make sense of that? Where do those things fit? And the idea is just to kind of flood in this way that breaks them up and sends them spinning, and then typically that's a good time for a joke because it's <laughs> that it sets yeah. everybody at ease, and we can with good humor grasp that kind of absurdity and move forward without getting too uptight about it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah definitely. I would say that um, the relationship, there's a kind of a linear progression between insight and the mystical experience, broadly speaking. Yeah. And in many ways, the crux of good pedagogy is provoking insights without spoon feeding them. I, I, I had a like kind of a flash of, of, of teaching or education being when, when the, the student is actually engaged with the problem rather than, rather than just passively uploading it like, like Neo and, and the matrix kind of things. Right. Like that's, that's not learning. That's, that's programming. No. And there's a complete, complete different uh, spin to it. Yeah. I mean, these days, um, and again, as, as a child of the card catalog uh, and having watched sort of the proliferation of electronic information, mm -hmm. I'm very aware of the kind of super saturation of information and fact, right? And, yeah. you know, if you pay attention to science at all, you're very aware of how quickly things flip and even leaving the replication crisis aside, mm. right? And, and the theory crisis and whatever, these things flip. So the certainty of fact configurations is low. Instead, what you often, in my opinion, you want to do in education is you're modeling a set of practices for how to think and the specifics of the facts might be interesting and everything, but you have to prepare people for the idea that those are going to flip. Otherwise they just get fixated and they get fixated and then they become the problem yeah. 30 years down the line when the new theory comes along. Yeah. So, yeah. but, but in terms of teaching people how to insight, right. It's about bringing, you know, it's like a spark plug, you know, you bring it together to the requisite distance, and then all of a sudden something crosses the gap. Yeah. And if you do enough analogical modeling and play, right, people will get those sparks. The idea is not to give them the link. If you give them the link, they just take it down, and often it processes in a very skeptical way. If, on the other hand, you sort of show them, like, look, then they get the flash. And being able to produce the flash, frankly, yeah. is in part, and then test the flash. Is is what the skill really is? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I'm I'm tempted to to go overboard and say, in certain times in my life, myself as my teacher of myself has brought me to the brink of things to instigate on a conscious level what it's been processing for for years mm -hmm. to, to initiate that um, in my own uh, limited experiences. But I did want to say when you were talking about uh, multi generational projects like cathedrals i think that with regards to current events the civil rights civil rights is is a, the american multi-generational project and and in that context one has to ask are we returning to the foundational principles um how do we continue a project that that's uh let's say justice how do you continue that project, that that construct over the course of generations, and how do you continually update it? Because there's new parameters. This 2020 is really different than 1960. It's it's really different, sure. um, and importing a lot of the rhetoric from 1960 into 2020 is actually not helpful. Um, so, right. I, I was just I was just thinking about that. And, 
I mean, I think there are certain foundational principles that are going to remain the same regardless, right? Like the fundamental sense of rights is just something you have to keep dragging front and center, right? Now, you can't ultimately stabilize rights in terms of priority. That's a mistake. The whole point is that judgment must be used on a case-by-case basis to determine which right is the preeminent right given a situation. That's the essence of justice, figuring that shit out. But Hmm. Yeah, I mean, but it is a different landscape. Again, I'm not a political scientist, so you know that's this isn't my specialty by any stretch. But the situation in terms of sort of polarization and tensions, I, I'm, you know, I'm not the first person, obviously, to make this observation, but it seems m- much closer to the period around the Civil War than it does around the 1960s, which is, for all kinds of reasons, obviously, extremely nervous-making. Yeah, right. Um, hmm. At the same time, you know, it has been pointed out, right? And I have to say, like, I almost always have a nonviolent stance. I'm, I have a very strong prohibition against violence, which is not to say that I think violence is, is invariably unnecessary. I think that sometimes acts of self-defense and acts of the defense of the weak and so on and so forth are morally justified. But, um, and, but by and large, I'm like, well, if we can talk about it, let's do that first. The problem is that people have pointed out that the channels of communication have become, if anything, increasingly divergent, <clears throat> Facebook. And, yeah. and it does seem like that's drifting further and further apart. They're kind of different cultural universes and never the twain shall meet and they don't need to. Yeah. And on top of that, as people have pointed out, and it's a bit grisly as a thought, but like for those who say that violence never accomplishes social change, like, you know, slavery in the U.S., wasn't ended by making the South feel bad about it. Yeah, but do you do you want um, this is this is hyperbole? But you don't want to solve microaggressions with with internecine uh, civil war either, right? Like the 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 disparities or the oppressions are on a smaller level than the sure. slavery or even the civil rights. And this is this is one of my sustained critique that I'm trying to break down is sure. that it seems a lot of the rhetoric. Is is importing the disparities of the past to make the moment urgent? It's it's over. It, it's it's uh, it's oversaturating the moment with uh, with passion that is not suited to the disparity that we're actually trying to deal with. Like the the, the oppressions have gotten smaller over time, but activism needs to maintain a certain uh, pitch. So my sense of that, and my sense of that is that. By and large, I actually don't think that microaggressions are people's real grievances. Yeah, yeah. I, but what I do think is that, like, a bit like Anomalous Card, the thing is that there is a deep unease, a deep structural unease that creates a cognitive dissonance for people. And microaggressions are a way of talking about that that's sort of allowed okay. into the political discourse. It atomizes it to a point where people will engage it again because a lot of people won't engage the idea right at, at, a, yeah. at a much bigger level the thing is that so so it gets finer and finer and finer you know on all sides of the political spectrum i see people being very sensitive on all sides in, there in is sensitive a, and not necessarily in a good way recently. well potentially in a good way but yeah. practically not right there, there is a lot of harsh rhetoric on all sides and and that makes sense given that everything is pulling apart but the thing is i don't think that that's primarily a political problem i think that that political issue is actually symptomatic of a deeper problem like i think the pull apart that we're seeing is 
is just people looking for something to attach themselves to with some stability as their overall sense of, of the stability of reality gets pulled to bits. Hmm. That's, I think, what the problem is. So to borrow John's turn, I think it's a meaning crisis. I, I think that what we see is symptomatic of the meaning crisis and not vice yes. versa. Yeah. But nevertheless, like, yeah, there are gross historical inequities yeah. that yeah. haven't really been addressed. And I think those grievances are legitimate grievances. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that they have a tendency to express themselves through a kind of finer grain lens because nobody wants riots in the streets. Okay. All right. But is that necessarily the way to deal with these things? Well, let's let's go through and uh, attack it in a different way. How do sure. I maintain my sovereignty over what I can be responsible to? And I guess you already answered this, but when I enter into the political debate, what, what what's some of the advice for people who unlike you are involved in Facebook? Like what, what is some of the things that we can be aware of on a cognitive level and on a, a, a Jungian level, maybe framework to, to maintain and to increase the, the meaning making and, and, and the, the doing of good in the world. Right. Okay. So I guess one thing that I would, one thing that I would recommend to people on all sides Um, is that you need to understand the machine that you're interacting with. So you have to understand what Facebook is before you can interact with it appropriately. And what Facebook is, is of course an engagement machine. And like most of these machines, it's designed uh, often by hiring economists and psychologists to produce right constant engagement. And and your engagement is the currency, right? You're the product that is sold to companies. Mm -hmm. Until you understand that fact, you don't really understand the machine that you're dealing with. Furthermore, you have to understand what Facebook's research around engagement has yielded. So a few years ago, right, Facebook has a huge research arm um, and they keep most of the research private. They have the kind of psychology research uh, capacities that universities couldn't get in their wildest dreams, right? Millions of test subjects who signed off on a contract without looking at it. Um, So, you know, you look at some of the experiments that Facebook has released and what are some of the things that we have seen? Well, they caught a lot of back backlash when they released that they're capable of manipulating effective states through tweaking the algorithm locally. So basically they can show you sad things and then turns out you get sad. The fact that they're experimenting with that at all is a little (laughs) nerve wracking. Here's one for you. If you don't know it, they've played around with whether or not they can um, tweak voter turnout. And it turns out they can. The idea that the idea that a private and, and like non-accountable entity, yeah. right, that has basically no oversight, has the ability to make choices like who is going to be more engaged and who is, right, is, can turn out democratic. Okay. This is very dangerous. So, okay, so take all that into consideration for just a second. Now, consider that their next thing is that the way to drive up engagement they've discovered is emotion. Duh. Yeah. Right? Emotions. Emotions get people motivated. They get yeah. people sharing. They get people responding. They get people and they've discovered that one of the most powerful ways to do that is outrage. Yeah. So like lots of comments have been made about the outrage machine in Facebook, but like you have to step back from it. And when I say that, I mean like literally disengage from it so that it's not plugged into your face all day. Yeah, yeah. And then you begin to see exactly what it is. You have what William Burroughs called a naked lunch moment, right? So in naked lunch, he says the naked lunch is the moment when everybody looks down and realizes exactly what's on the end of their fork. Hmm. That 
is, is pretty key. Because once you see that at work, you begin to realize all of the ways that Facebook acts to balkanize, polarize, reinforce, echo chamber, and all that other stuff. And like, it's, it, it's hard to overstate that this is a massive uncontrolled experiment mm -hmm. on a global scale. Um, and I think that it is driving the polarization. It's not that that wasn't there, but like 40 years ago, people could still civilly reach across the aisle. Yeah. Have you ever read Ender's Game? Yeah. Orson Scott Card, yeah? Yeah. Okay, so there's a lot of cool shit in that book, obviously, but um, the thing that is least realistic about that book, I realized a few years ago, is spoilers for anybody that hasn't read it in the last 50 years or whatever. Um, so if you, if you don't want to, you should hit pause. <laughs> or if you're, if you're going to read it, you should hit pause. The, the thing that is least realistic about that book is that... Um, Ender Wiggins, two siblings who are super geniuses, right, go online and basically in the futuristic equivalent of Reddit, they proceed to have a rational discussion. And through their cleverly counterpointed rational discussion, they manage to rationally convince humanity to bind together under a one world hegemonic government and pull themselves out of poverty and strife. Can you imagine that falls short on so many different levels yeah. on what we know about human rationality yeah. on what we know about the way that these things, but you know, I, back in the nineties, like everybody read wired magazine and dreamed of a world without borders yeah. and how this was going to enable me to talk to people. And indeed in early days, it, like it was a tremendous connecting force. Mm -hmm. but since then we've developed systems that amplify other aspects of human tribalism and human nature. And Facebook, of course, by its very nature draws on those those things because engagement because tribal engagement is a good way to get you zoned in. So how, what, what would my recommendation be? My general recommendation would be dump your Facebook profile. I mean, what do you need it for? You think you need it to look at baby pictures, but you don't, you, you think you need it to go look at photos of your ex on vacation, but you don't. Yeah. You think that you need it to make sure that you get invited to parties, but you don't. Because when somebody invites you to a party on Facebook, they send it out to 500 people. If they actually want you to be there, they'll send you an email or a text. You, the point that is, in general, people think that Facebook is doing something for them, and it isn't. What yeah. it does is, you know, like, like fattening up a, a goose for foie gras, it's a tube that is thrust into them that feeds them content that they already agree with or that is designed to enrage them. And as soon as you recognize that that's what it's doing, and pull the tube out. Um, and find other ways to engage with information. Mm -hmm. In some cases, slower ways. In some cases, more deliberate ways. Go and talk to actual human beings, right? Rather than arguing with people online. Because yeah. people's behavior online is not what people behave like in real life. Hey, come on. To... I'm, I'm sure you're acting like you normally do. Are you not acting like you normally do right now? Right now? Yeah, right now. Well, I mean, to some extent, I'm inhabiting a professorial okay. persona. I yeah. mean, that's unavoidable, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I, 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 I have, I'm, I have I'm, pants I'm, on and those are optional <laughs> at home now. So. Well, they are. Absolutely. We didn't need to go there, but you did. <laughs> I'm just, I, I need to push back on you a little bit because I, somebody like me, I, I derive a lot of my, even my income now through engaging with these platforms. So I'm more concerned with interacting with them wisely than just unplugging from them. I, it's not feasible for me to unplug from YouTube. And, and actually, sure. Twitter is pretty important to me just uh, for connecting with people and, and wrestling with ideas. Um, so it's, it's more about my behavior in those. Uh, right. But what I'm saying is that recognizing behavior requires you to unplug uh, for a bit. I'm not okay. saying you have to do it forever. But 
you have to disengage from the system long enough okay. to realize what you're dealing with. Okay. And that's very, okay. very hard when you're tangled in it. So think about this. Think about, you know, there's a thing that I say a lot to my students, which is if you think you've reached enlightenment, spend the weekend with your family. And what that means is you can get distance and suddenly feel really like, oh, you know, and then you go back and you fall into the same patterns. But the distance often enables you to recognize those patterns, right? A few times away from home, you suddenly go back and you're like, Jesus, why do my dad and I always do this thing? You have to be distant, right? You have to have that gap okay. to create a kind of mindfulness. Okay. That's what I'm recommending is that people not necessarily abandon social media. I think there's a lot of potential good there. I still believe in some level the utopian idea of the 90s. But the thing is that until you recognize the way that these specific systems are designed to, um, to manipulate you and the way that that's having mass impact, it becomes very difficult to find a strategy to rationally and consciously engage with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's what I'm saying. Okay. I, I think that social media, generally speaking, could be good. But I think that the way that we have it set up now is bad for us. And we ought to consider the way in which it's bad for us, right? In the same way as we, we adopt technologies at a breakneck speed without considering how they are affecting us, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and they do affect us. So that's partly what I'm, what I'm getting at in that sense. Um, what's a, a project that you're working on now? What's, what's next on your plate coming up? Uh, do you have, uh, are you teaching during the summer? Do you have a, another institute, a virtual institute going on? You're going to instigate some <laughs> mystical experience through the photons of Zoom or something like that? Uh, that's a good idea. No. Um, uh, so I don't teach during the summer, uh, typically. Um, I just, I like having the gap and yeah. I always liked having summers off, so I maintain my practice. Uh, I'm doing a few things. I'm working on a book chapter for um, a, a book that uh, John and Christopher um, uh, Maestro Pietro are editing, which is on some of the, the stuff on sort of um, dialogos and alchemy and mystical experience. Mm -hmm. I'm drafting actually my own uh, book, which has been in the works for a while. Is it a monograph uh, or is it a novel? What is it? Uh, I only, I, I do write novels, but I write one a year. That's my, and I, I write a, do you know about the three day novel writing contest? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's yeah. the, the short lopsided cousin of the national novel, novel writing. That's right. Of Nan, of Nano Remo. Yeah. So I've been doing the three day novel contest for 20 years. Oh yeah. Okay. So I, I blast it every year. I took third a few years ago. So the, the oh, first, wow. first prize is <laughs> close. That's my Labor Day weekend every year. Um, while my friends are at barbecues, I'm chained to a sweaty laptop <laughs> yeah. um, with tor torturing myself. But uh, yeah, so I'm, no, the book that I'm working on is nonfiction. So it's sort of a theoretical integration of uh, a bunch of the material that I've taught on, um, my material on cognitive science and therapeutic material, and sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, who knows what it will actually be called, but the working title is uh, Shapeshifting, A Practical Guide. Um, so oh. it basically has to do with a lot of this material around yeah. psychotechnology, cognitive flexibility, um, what, what sort of alchemical systems mean, how that ties into therapeutic process and putting all that together. <laughs> uh, and then uh, my own, so I got kind of thrust uh, unexpectedly into YouTube land uh, because COVID-19 suddenly meant that I couldn't go into the classroom. And yeah. so all of a sudden I was like, okay, I guess I record videos now. Yeah. Um, and I had done some stuff with John, but that was really pretty sidelined. So consequently, I had recorded a few um, videos. People are welcome to go to my YouTube channel, which is Anderson Todd. Anderson is my first name. Todd, my last name. Thank you, Anderson Cooper. Um, yeah, you can go to my YouTube channel and subscribe if you like. There's only a handful of videos, but 
uh, I will say here, I don't know if I've said this anywhere else, uh, I decided that since the fall looks like it's likewise going to be online, uh, I might as well sort of overhaul things and start um, look at more seriously recording rather than ad hoc. So I'm currently sort of in mid-production on uh, an extended series specifically on kind of cognitive science, alchemy, and, and Jungian thinking called uh, Opus. Opus. Uh, so Opus is the title. Uh, and so what I'm looking to do basically is start releasing... I had an alchemy video, which is ended up being four and a half hours long. And, <laughs> uh, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to break this up. I got on a roll. I got on a roll. And then I realized, oh, wait, I didn't say all the things I wanted to say. <laughs> so instead, I decided, let's pull back and maybe try to like roll this out a bit more systematically and somewhat more digestibly. Um, so, yeah, I'm working on that and a few other video things. So, yeah. Excellent. I'm, I'm so coming, coming to YouTube land. You, so you have a few courses planned then. I, well, I have my own coursework, but then in addition to that, I'm doing sort of lecture series, yeah. um, looking at doing yeah a few things like that. So in, some of the other material that I do, um, some of it is hard to shoehorn into lecture, like, uh, hmm. well, the fiction, for instance. Uh, and likewise, I'm an avid longtime role player, uh, like uh, Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. but across the board. Uh, and there's a lot of material there, both practically, theoretically, and in terms of sort of narrative theory. I've been looking for a venue for for years. I have yeah. lots of friends and colleagues who have been like, you should do something with this. So yes, uh, I'm going to roll some of that out too, I think. But, oh, this sounds yeah, so, like juicy stuff you got going on. I hope. I hope. I mean, I, I don't leave my house much now. Yeah. So, <laughs> Welcome. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's the split between this and tinkering with the 3D printers. Oh, right. Uh, great books. Uh, yeah. You know, I was just, I'm just having a thought now. I'd love to hear you and Jonathan Peugeot talk about d and I don't know if you know Jonathan. He's been um, for Vicky's. I've not met him. He's. I know he and uh, John have become quite close and they've yeah. done yeah. talks back and forth. I keep looking to meet him, actually, because uh, it sounds like... Um, we have a lot in common in terms of sort of our uh, our sense of um, uh, the 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 imminent in in mythology and sort of the reality of story structure and right the idea that you know Superman is real in 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 an important sense. You mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I keep I keep looking forward to meeting him, but I haven't had the chance yet. Right, is he a gamer? Does he role play as well? Uh, is Greek Orthodoxy a game? Would you? Th- say that's kind of a gift because <laughs> I, I don't think so uh, <laughs> except maybe in the Wittgensteinian sense that everything is a game. yeah yeah right right uh, I don't know yeah. I, I just I think you guys would have a great conversation I think you'd turn a lot of heads so you guys bouncing ideas off of each other uh, that would be great uh, maybe uh, maybe I can uh, talk gin him into a roundtable I feel like that's uh, that's the kind of thing that would benefit from from a bunch of people at a big round table yeah. or as the case may be a circle of squares on a screen zoom gallery. Yeah. That's what it's called. Gallery. Yeah. Yeah. Gallery. Gallery. Well, yeah. cool. I, I will, um, I'll link everybody to your channel and cool. so you're going to have stuff. Uh, do you have like a schedule? You think John banged uh, his meaning crisis out insane. He just like goes 60 episodes. Boom. One yeah. a week. I know, I know. I was involved. Uh, oh, were you? So, yeah, <laughs> they, they filmed about five hours at a time. I, thankfully, was not there for filming, but oh, I really? got him set up. My consulting office is in a nice old building. That's where they, they filmed. Okay. I got the, anyway, but uh, yes, and in fact, I'm involved in the setup and funding and stuff for the next series, uh, which is um, due to come out. Well, it's hard to say. Lockdown has yeah. changed things. But uh, yeah, so the next series. So no, I was kind of involved in that. Yeah, I mean, John's a machine. 
<laughs> right? He's been doing this for 30 years. Yeah. And he does it like no like nobody I've ever met. Um I I am blessed to have worked with and studied under some really tremendous lecturers mm-hmm. in my time. And for a bunch of years at UFT, I organized a, a lecture series or a, a conference uh, called Mind Matters, which you can still find online. And yeah, I've gone through you know, some had, of that. Yeah, yeah. I had some bang up people. You know, uh, uh, Jordan and John were fairly regular fixtures. Yeah. Um, Dan Dolderman. So, you know, I, I had the opportunity. But yeah, John, when John gets on <laughs> the roll, it takes a lot out of him, but he can, he can blast. Yeah. I'm a creature of, uh, uh, I think what you'll see come out is a little bit less. <laughs> Less. Balls to the wall? No, I don't know about that. I really no, get into pretty, it. Yeah, yeah. But the more that I've thought about it, I mean, look, if there's been a two-month gap between part one of Alchemy okay. and what has now become a series, yeah. that should tell you something. <laughs> but I'm getting up to speed on this whole universe. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, thanks a lot, Benjamin. This, yeah. uh, this has been a really good talk. Thanks a uh, lot, Instructor it. Todd. Uh, I'm going to still think of you as a professor, though, if you don't mind. Okay, that's Colloquially, fine. Colloquially, I've colloquially caved in. (laughs) Okay. All right. You have a good afternoon. Yeah. Take care. All right. Ciao. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.